Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Good morning. Great to be with you all today. I want to start uh, today just by sharing from the Word with you. I'll tell a little bit about our ministry there in Ukraine towards the end. Um, The church that I pastor, Calvary Chapel of Svidlovotsk, has a vision statement. The vision statement goes like this. Enjoy Jesus, stand fast in grace, live in love, and reach the world. Uh, And it's that first point that I want to talk with you about today. Enjoy Jesus. If there is a God... And, and I'm assuming many of us at least believe that there is, the great question of life is this, how should we relate to him? And even though it's not maybe a common answer, I want to suggest to you that the most biblical answer to that question is delight. We are called to enjoy him. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, that might sound odd to you. Uh, Maybe at least not the answer you would expect to hear. Perhaps you would think that a Christian would say, well, first and foremost, we're called to obey God, right? Or to serve God. And many Christians probably would answer like that. Uh, In fact, if you are a Christian today, perhaps that's one of the possible answers that you thought of in response to that question. Today, we're going to look at some uh, common but ultimately wrong answers to that question. How should we relate to God? And secondly, we'll take a look at, uh, from Ephesians 5, as, as Nick mentioned earlier, the biblical way that a Christian should relate to God, that is enjoyment. Uh, so we'll get to today's passage after we look at a few of those common views first. And it needs to be said that uh, even though these common answers might be ultimately wrong, um, they seem right at first. That's why people often would answer this way. And there are elements of truth in each of these answers, but ultimately they fall short of the biblical picture of how we should relate to God. First of all, when we think about that question, how should we relate to God? Somebody might say, well, we should serve him, right? And that sounds correct. That sounds biblical that we are called to serve Christ. Uh, But to understand why it's not ultimately the best answer, we need to ask this question. If somebody says that first and foremost, primarily, our relationship to God should be one of service, then what's the picture of that relationship? How do they view their relationship to God? The answer is that most likely the relationship would be between that of a master and a servant, hence to serve. Now, is God a master? According to the Bible, yes. Uh, The Bible says that Jesus is the Lord of lords, he's our master, uh, that we are in some sense servants, But if that describes the essence of our relationship with God, if that's the primary way that we think of how we relate to him, that's a problem. Why? Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 15, I no longer call you servants. And Jesus, by doing so, was indicating the depth of his relationship with his disciples, saying that they were not not servants, not slaves, Uh, The Apostle Paul picks up on this idea in Romans chapter 8, where he says, you have not received the spirit of bondage, or in another translation, slavery, to live again in fear. See, if we view our relationship to God primarily as that of between a servant and a master, 
then the relationship will be at best formal and impersonal. It's a relationship that ultimately, as Paul says, is based on fear. See, if the slave doesn't produce, if he doesn't fulfill the tasks that he's given, then he'll be punished. So a slave's motive in doing what he does is ultimately out of fear, fear of the master. It's a consumeristic relationship from the side uh, of the master because ultimately the whole point of him having a slave and having that relationship is to get something out of him, to get some work done. The relationship, in other words, is secondary to the work. It only exists as long as the slave is doing his duties. And if not, then it very quickly ends. Sadly, there are far too many Christians who have a similar slave mentality when it comes to our relationship to God. The relationship is based on fear that if we don't do what we're supposed to be doing, if we don't produce what God wants us to produce, uh, God will punish us, he'll throw us out, end of relationship. Perhaps we have the impression that God is primarily interested in us for what we do, uh, as if we were workhorses. And this leads to a relationship that fluctuates based on uh, our performance at any given time. But because we are not consistent, we're not constant, uh, that means that our relationship with God is also always in flux, also always lacking any assurance. A person who sees their relationship with God this way is always living under threat. Thankfully, this is not the picture of God's relationship to the church. If it were, there would be no good news, there would be no gospel. Now, we are called to serve Jesus, as we mentioned, but not as slaves. That is, not out of fear. As the Apostle Paul, uh, excuse me, the Apostle John writes in his first epistle, perfect love casts out fear. So, if we are to serve, but not out of fear, the question is, how are we to serve him? We'll get back to that question a little bit later. But let's look at another common answer. Uh, another person might say that primarily, first and foremost, in our relationship to God, we're called to obey him, to follow him. Again, that sounds right, that sounds good, uh, if when you read the Bible, that we are called to these things, but to understand why that's ultimately not the best answer, we need to ask the same question. How does that person view their relationship to God? What's the picture? And the answer is that uh, that person's relationship most likely he views his relationship with God as between a teacher and a disciple, right? Who's following after his teacher in obedience. Now again, is Christ our teacher? Yes, right? The Bible talks about this. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. The Bible frequently calls Christians disciples. So we are called to follow him, to obey him, but not simply as a disciple follows after a teacher. See, the relationship of a teacher and a disciple might be a step above the relationship between a master and a slave, but it's still a problematic picture for how we relate to God. Why? The relationship of a disciple and a teacher, in some sense, is uh, flipped in that in the first picture, the master is a consumeristic, has a consumeristic approach. In the second picture, the disciple has a consumeristic approach. Right? They're in that relationship with a teacher for what they can get out of it. A teacher is a means to an end, to gain some knowledge or some skills. 
And ultimately, if a disciple finds a better teacher, a more qualified teacher, they'll leave the previous teacher uh, to go to another one. And that's fine and well as it should be in, in those kinds of relationships. And in fact, a good teacher will want his disciple not to stay with him forever, but to move on uh, to gain more skills, knowledge, etc., because that's the teacher's goal is to train up the disciple. But listen, that also means that there's no permanence in the relationship. It means that it's merely a means to an end. And a Christian who sees Jesus primarily as a teacher and disciple, uh, that's a Christian that's primarily focused on themselves. Focused on what we know or what skills we can gain, what growth uh, we're supposed to produce. Christ is turned into a means to an end of spiritual knowledge, morality, wisdom, etc., And unfortunately, there are many Christians who think that the essence of the Christian life is essentially this, to acquire more and more spiritual knowledge, uh, or that Jesus is interested primarily in uh, our moral improvement, us getting rid of bad habits and like. Now, understand correctly, Jesus is interested in our transformation, but it's not an end in and of itself. So why does he want to transform us? Again, hold that question, we'll get back to it. Let's look at another common answer. Uh, in, in answering this question of how should we relate to God, another Christian might say, well, we're, above all, we're supposed to glorify God. And depending on how we define glorify, that could be the right answer. But the truth is it probably isn't because we're probably not defining it correctly. Again, let's ask the same question. What's the picture that that Christian has of his or her relationship with God? if we say primarily we're to glorify him. When most Christians speak of glorifying God, we're probably thinking about God's majesty, his power, his holiness, and so on. So the person who says that first and foremost we're supposed to glorify God uh, most likely sees our relationship with him as between a king and, and a subject, right? Uh, that, that the king is powerful, he's, he's glorious, Uh, And the subject's duty is to acknowledge that, right? To hence, in that sense, worship. Now, again, is Christ a king? Yes, he's the king of kings, the Bible says. He is majestic and almighty and holy. He is worthy of worship. But the truth is that if realizing those facts, acknowledging those facts and, and declaring them is all that we mean when we say glorify God, then we're not actually glorifying him. So what does it mean biblically to glorify God? It would seem that, again, too many Christians think that glorifying God would just be realizing these these correct facts about God's power, his majesty, his character, and so on. Perhaps even acknowledging them with a measure of holy fear, so to speak. But this can't be what the Bible means by worshiping God. And to understand why not, we need to ask and answer a couple questions. Not about God, but about Satan. According to the Bible, does Satan realize the facts of God's power and majesty? Yes, right? He realizes them better than we do. The Bible says that he's, he's beheld God uh, unhindered, right? Does he know these things and does he have a measure of fear? Yes, the Bible says that the demons believe and they tremble. But here's the question, does Satan or the demons worship God? Absolutely not. 
So what does that imply for our definition of worship? It means that simply acknowledging the facts about God that are correct, even with a measure of fear, that's not worship. And so when we as Christians think that by acknowledging these truths about God, his power, his majesty, and so on, perhaps even with a measure of fear, that we're worshiping God in that way, we're not doing anything of the sort. In reality, if that's the extent of our so-called worship, we're lying to ourselves. Our relationship to God is no better than that of a demon. So this brings up a big, important question. What is then the biblical definition of worship? I would suggest to you that the opposite of worship is not denial of facts, but rather blasphemy, right? Satan, again, realizes these facts of God's power, his majesty, and so on, but he blasphemes. What does that mean? It means that though he recognizes these different attributes of God, he has absolutely no pleasure in them, all right? He's, he's, on the contrary, he's disgusted by them. He hates these things about God. And this is our big hint as to what biblical worship really is. Listen, if the opposite of worship, blasphemy, right, is to be disgusted by God, then the essence of worship is to find delight in God, to find pleasure in him, in all that he is for us. The word worship, as it's used in scripture and uh, commonly as we use it in a Christian context, mostly is interchangeable with the word praise, right, worship, praise. But think for a moment, what does it mean to praise something? And, and not just in the religious context, right? For example, if we watch a great movie or a series on Netflix, right? What do we do? We tell our friends, we're like, oh, you have to watch this. It's amazing. It'll blow your mind. What are we doing? We're praising that movie or that series, right? Or if you go to a, a restaurant and you eat some delicious dish, you know, you're posting it on Instagram and hashtag tasty and everything else, uh, you know, what are you doing? You're praising that meal, right? Listen, praise simply means to express our delight in something. Praise simply means to express our delight in something. So, carrying that back to our definition of worship, what does it mean to praise or worship God? It means to find delight in him and to express that delight to his glory. So biblically speaking, it's impossible to worship Jesus if we do not enjoy him. If you think that you're worshiping Jesus, but you don't enjoy him, if it's just about acknowledging the right facts, again, maybe even with a measure of fear, you're not really worshiping. Jesus, on the contrary, convicted the Pharisees of this very thing. He said, you worship me with your lips, you're saying the right facts about God, but your hearts are far from me. There's no delight in it. There's no joy. So then the question arises, okay, how can we come to enjoy Jesus? Surely we can't simply say, okay, well, I'm going to start enjoying Jesus now, right? This is an important question. We'll get back to it in just a moment. But first, one more common answer to the question, how should we relate to God? Perhaps another person would say that first and foremost, we are called to love God. And again, in reality, this could be the correct answer if we define love God correctly. But the problem is that we define love in all sorts of ways, right? We love ice cream and we love our grandma and we love the Avengers and we love God, okay? So what is the biblical understanding of love towards God? Let me suggest that in reality, the definition of love for God 
is actually one and the same with the biblical definition of praise. In other words, enjoyment of God is the essence of love and worship to him. Enjoyment of Christ is the essence of love and worship to him. And to see that in Scripture, let's now open after the world's longest sermon intro, our passage, and read Ephesians chapter 5. Again, if you have your Bibles, you can open with me. Ephesians chapter 5, starting from verse 25. If not, you can just listen along. Paul writes here, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This passage lays out for us the answer, the biblical answer to that question, how should a person relate to God? How should a believer, all believers, the church, relate to Christ? And the answer is that it's not just some vague philosophical idea of love. It's a very specific love. It's the love between a bride and a groom. This is the same picture that's portrayed when we answer the question that first and foremost, we should enjoy Jesus. Right? If we say that first and foremost, we're called not necessarily only to serve, not only to follow, not only to, to glorify in some vague sense, but we're called to enjoy Christ. What's the picture of that relationship? It's this picture. It's the picture of a bride and a groom, a picture of a relationship of intimacy, of delight, and this illustration in reality is used of God's relationship to his people all throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, we see that God often speaks of himself as a husband to his people, who are also portrayed as, unfortunately, often an adulterous wife. In the New Testament, Jesus is called the bridegroom in the very beginning of his ministry, both by John the Baptist and he calls himself this. Of course, we have here in Ephesians that, that Paul again brings up this picture. And even to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, we see that the church is described as the bride of Christ, dressed in white at the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, it's only in this context, in this relationship of enjoyment, that all the other aspects can be properly fulfilled. Again, we said that we are called to serve Jesus, but not as slaves. How then, as a beloved bride? Not out of fear that he'll punish us or leave us. Not to earn his love, but because in his faithfulness, he has brought us into covenant with himself. Because he has loved us, as Paul writes here, and given himself for us to make us his bride. We serve him as an expression of intimacy, of affection and appreciation. We serve him not to earn relationship, but because he has already brought us into relationship with himself. Also, we said we are called in some sense to follow and obey Jesus, but again, not simply as a disciple follows a teacher. In what sense then? As a bride follows her groom, right? He's not simply a means to another end, but he himself is the goal. 
The relationship doesn't exist for something else. It exists for its own sake. Our following, our obedience to him is primarily to enjoy being with him. Again, we said that we're to be transformed. God is interested in our transformation, but why? It's so that there's nothing to hinder that closeness. Nothing to hinder our delight of him. We desire to be transformed in order to grow in that enjoyment. Again, we do glorify him, but not simply as a subject glorifies a king. Rather, as his beloved bride. We praise him, again, in that sense that we talked about, of delighting in him and expressing that. We delight in him because, again, as this passage says, he has loved us and given himself for us. On the cross, Jesus lost his glory and his beauty. He lost his purity. Not in the sense of becoming sinful, but in the sense of taking our sins on himself. For what sake? For what purpose? As Paul writes here, so that he could make us, his bride, perfect, without spot and without blemish. We delight in the beauty and the glory of his love. Again, we asked the question earlier, how can we come to that place of enjoyment? How can we enjoy Jesus? It's not simply an act of the will. It's not simply that we decide, okay, well, in that case, I'm going to enjoy Jesus now. Enjoyment is a reaction. It's a result of seeing the love of Christ demonstrated for us on the cross, of meditating upon that. And again, understand correctly, that doesn't mean that our delight is always full and perfect and pure, but it is present in real worship. Even when it looks more like comfort during hard times, even when it looks more like hope during a season of suffering. Nevertheless, we must choose to behold that love, behold the cross. And that's what causes us to enjoy him more. So to worship Jesus, to love him in the biblical sense, is to delight in him as a bride delights in her groom. This is the heart of true worship. True worship is not about self-improvement, uh, motivated by fear or duty. Again, sadly, too many Christians would call something similar to that worship. And it's certainly not about trying to use Jesus to get what we think we want or need. In reality, that's just worshiping ourselves and attempting to use Christ to do it. Rather, true worship is rapture, delight in the arms of our beloved Savior. Now, we might find that difficult to wrap our head around, because we've got this stoic, pharisaic idea that, well, worshiping God can't possibly be that enjoyable, right? I mean, aren't we supposed to suffer a little bit? But that's backwards. Oxford professor and Christian author C.S. Lewis writes the following about this point. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot possibly imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And understand correctly, this does not mean that we're making a God out of pleasure. On the contrary, uh, Christian author John Piper says and explains this point very well, that this understanding of enjoyment as the essence of worship is not making a God out of pleasure. Rather, it's saying that you have already made a God out of whatever you find the most pleasure in. You've already made a God out of whatever you find the most pleasure in. 
But perhaps the idea is best summarized by Scripture itself, by the psalmist, as we began worship this morning and read from Psalm 16, when he says in prayer to the Lord, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what we desire to see in Ukraine. That's what we desire to see God doing in the hearts of people, creating true worshipers who enjoy Christ. Now, very briefly, I want to give you a little bit of an update about um, what we're doing there in Ukraine, some ways that you can be involved with God's work there. First of all, as regards our, our church, Calvary Chapel Svidlovodsk, there's a f- couple big events that have happened recently. First of all, this May, we prayed over my assistant pastor, uh, Levi, who is also a Whitefields-connected, supported missionary, uh, to send him out as a planter of a new church in a new city. Uh, This is actually the second church planner that we've sent out over our 16 years of existence there. And we're, we're thankful, we rejoice at this opportunity that God is, is, is multiplying the gospel in the cities of Ukraine. At the same time, we're praying that God would continue to raise up new leaders, including an assistant pastor, um, and, and continue to raise up new church planters. Uh, also, another, another big kind of thing is that our church is currently involved in a building project, uh, which has been going on for about five years at this point. This is about four years ago is the picture on the screen. Uh, And Whitefields has been involved over the years uh, in donating towards this project, so we're thankful to God for your generosity. Uh, The last time that we were here a couple years ago and shared at Whitefields, um, since then we've actually been able to move in to the building, start using it. Uh, So this is what it looks like today. Uh, So beyond uh, the church uh, that I pastor there, I also serve as coordinator of a ministry called City to City Ukraine. Uh, this is an affiliate of Redeemer City to City, which was founded by Tim Keller. Some of you may know that name. Uh, our vision in City to City Ukraine uh, sounds like this. City to City Ukraine exists to promote gospel renewal in the key cities of Ukraine through church planting. We provide training, coaching, and resources to leaders who desire to influence their cities through the power of the gospel for the common good. Our goal is to see 100 new churches planted in the key cities of Ukraine by 2030. Uh, now, by God's grace, we're already training our third group of church planters from uh, various Protestant denominations, uh, and uh, this third group makes a total of 30 planters that we, we will have trained. Uh, many of these have already gone on to plant their new churches or, or replant churches. Um, Levi, by the way, is in this newest group, so, so he'll be taking part in that as well. Additionally, I also serve as the training coordinator for City to City across Europe, Um, And the vision is similar, that we desire to see movements of the gospel in the cities of Europe. Our goal is, within the next five years, to see 500 new church planters uh, raised up in the key cities of Europe, to see a continent transformed. Now, I want to share with you just a few ways that you can be involved, again, with God's work in Ukraine and and in our ministry. Uh, First and foremost, the most important way would be to pray for us. As Jesus said, without him, we can do nothing. So here's a few things that you can pray for. Uh, You can pray for revival in our city of Svidlovotsk, that God would continue to work in people's hearts. Uh, Pray for new leaders in our church, including that God would bring along or raise up a new assistant pastor. Uh, Pray for church planting through city to city Ukraine. Again, that goal of 100 gospel-centered new churches. This has to be a work of God's spirit, otherwise it won't happen. Uh, Pray also for the church building process. Again, praise God that we've been able to move in uh, recently, start using the facility, but there's still a lot done. So pray for God's provision 
Um, there's still a lot to get done, rather. Uh, so pray for God's provision that we would be able to continue that process. Pray for peace in Ukraine. Uh, there is actually still a war going on. Some of you may remember hearing about it about six years ago when it started. It is still continuing. It's at kind of a frozen conflict stage. Uh, but people are still suffering. There's still violence that's happening. So pray for peace in Ukraine. Uh, and then also you can pray for our family, uh, for health and God's provision. Uh, health tends to be an area of spiritual attack for us, uh, you know, around ministry events that, that tends to be where we get hit. Uh, so we'd be grateful for your prayers. Secondly, we'd ask you to also prayerfully consider being involved through giving financial support. Uh, and if you feel that God would put on your heart to be involved with support, uh, you can do so using the information you see on the screen. The first link is just general ministry donation support to our family. Uh, the second link is specifically to the building fund, and as you also saw in the video. Um, also, for those of you who, who don't want to or prefer not to donate online, you can donate by check. Uh, the information through our sending church in Indianapolis is there on the screen. Uh, also, if you're here today and you would like to donate today, uh, I'll be out there in the commons area after the service. You can come up and cash or personal checks are also acceptable. Lastly, we would encourage you to connect with us. We're on all kinds of social media. You can see the username for all of those. Our website is up there. And that first link is to sign up for our quarterly newsletter. So once every three months, we send out some fresh news, prayer requests, uh, just so you can follow along with what's happening and, and continue in, in timely prayer for us. Now, all that information I just gave you about how to connect with us uh, is on these puppies. Uh, this is our prayer magnet. So I've got a bunch of these out there on the table in the commons area. If you come up, you can grab one. Unfortunately, my family was not able to come with me today, but you can at least see a picture of them on the magnet. Again, it is magnetic, so as long as your fridge isn't made of aluminum, you can slap it on your fridge, it'll stay there. And when you're going for that midnight snack that you probably don't need, nevertheless, you can thank God for his grace and pray for the missionaries in Ukraine. So uh, please come up, get one of these, come up and talk, find out more. Uh, I'll be out there in the commons area after service. So thank you guys. Thank you for your uh, hospitality, for your welcome, for being involved with our ministry in Ukraine. Let me pray for us and then I'll pass it back over to Nick. God, I thank you uh, just for your great grace. Lord, thank you that you have called us not to be just slaves, not to be merely disciples or subjects, Lord, but to be your bride. God, would you deepen our heart in that message of delight in you? Lord, would we uh, grow not simply in knowledge, not simply in uh, some sort of spiritual skills, God, but, but grow in intimacy with you? Lord, thank you that you have done everything necessary for that on your cross, that you have given yourself for us to make us your pure and spotless bride. God, would you transform our relationship to you? And if there are areas where we've related to you wrongly, would you show that to us and give us repentance, Lord, that we would be able to more fully um, draw near you as your beloved bride. We ask it in Jesus' name. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.